Welcome to Make Things That Matter, the podcast where we explore impactful products and the cultures that create them. I'm your host, Andrew Scottsko, and if I'm doing my job well, each episode of this show will help you to do meaningful work, make things that make things better, and have a great experience doing it. My guest in this conversation is Chris Smith, a longtime friend and technical mentor of mine. Chris has led the development of data systems and strategies at tech giants such as early Google, Yahoo, and Sun, S&P 500 companies like Live Nation, and a wide range of startups. He has been in the game of building data-driven software products for something like 30 years now and is one of the people absolutely on speed dial for me when it comes to understanding important technologies, especially related to all things AI and machine learning. And in this conversation, that's exactly where we're going to go. A key topic that I've avoided up until now... AI. As we all know by now, AI is an enabling technology that's absolutely essential that we each have at least a baseline understanding of so that we can be informed enough to reason about it and make decisions about it. In this conversation, we go deep there. We talk about what AI really is versus, say, machine learning or applied statistics or AGI, and then really how to build a mental model so that you can reason about it, you can think about it, and you can make decisions about it when it comes to incorporating it into your product and into your company. So without any further ado, please enjoy Chris Smith. Well, Chris, officially, welcome to the show. It's so good to have you here. I have been looking forward to having you on the show. Since before I even started the damn show, it's been four years now. And for years, I've been going, damn it, I need to get Chris on the show. So here we are. Thank you. How you doing, man? I'm doing great. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's been a, it's been a while. It's been a while. So it's good to yeah, see you. Yeah, it's been a minute. It's been a, we were, we were, uh, we were very fortunate to run into each other at that AI conference, whatever, a week or two ago. Yes. And, uh, for, for the listeners yes. who don't, you'll, you'll figure this out very quickly. Chris and I used to work together. He was one of the people who was uh, in- incredibly, incredibly patient with me when I was learning to, when I was switching into engineering and somehow did not kill me, um, <laughs> which he would have probably been well justified yeah, in doing. So thanks for not killing me, Chris, and answering no, you were, all of my questions with infinite patience. Oh, it was easy to do because you were brilliant. You you made, uh, you picked up the skills faster than anyone I've ever seen in that situation before. It was really a sight to behold, and it was a thrill to be part of well, it. Well, for, for the listener that doesn't know this backstory, this is this goes back to a startup Chris and I worked on together, was it like t- back in 2011? 2011-ish? Jeez. Ish. Please tell me it wasn't that long ago. Yeah, no, it's, it's something like, like that. that yeah. 2011, 2012. It's something like something that. Like so, that. so the backstory here is uh, up until that part, part of my life, I'd been working in marketing, actually, doing what we would now call like very growth marketing, very quantitatively driven marketing. Uh, and then I realized at one point that I, I actually needed to build things. And so- <laughs> Given we were a startup and hiring engineers is hard, we decided, hey, what if Andrew tries to become an engineer and uh, threw me to the wolves? And by the wolves, we mean the very supportive senior engineers such as Chris. And uh, I've been looking forward to having you on the show, Chris, for such a long time, not only because I enjoy talking to you, but also because, you know, I've worked with a lot of great engineers in my life. But of all the great engineers I've worked with, you've always stood out in my mind as one of the best teachers. And that is a skill. Oh, thank you. That's really nice. Oh, to say. I mean, thank you for for. I mean, for, for doing it, uh, cause I've, you know, I've worked with a lot of great engineers who can't really teach it. They can't explain it. And that's something that I think you're uniquely gifted at. And so given, given that and given all the hype and the insanity going on with all things AI, I was like, you know what? I think it's the time let's do this. So anyways, that's a long wind up, but I, I'm, I'm really excited to have you here, man. Absolutely. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. So, so I, I mean, I think we can't get into an AI conversation right now, just to timestamp this. We're doing this in November 22nd, 2023. 
<laughs> and so uh, it's been a bit of an interesting four or five days in the AI world. You know, it was last Friday that the, the most visible person probably on the planet related to AI, Sam Altman, was uh, unceremoniously fired from his own company. Um, there's a lot of speculation running around all over the place, lots of different stories, but you know, and we'll, whatever, we'll leave that to the, to the, to the tech TMZs. But my question for you is yeah. as a practitioner, as someone deeply embedded in this space and a builder, like, what do you make of all this? And how do you, like, how does this actually shift things in the way you're thinking about it as someone who builds this? Well, I do think that, that, uh, what we're seeing is we're, we're hitting an inflection point, uh, in, in the, in the development of the AI, you know, industry, uh, and and it, and it's not just OpenAI that's being hit by this. Uh, we were talking before about how Cruz, where I used to work, has also seen a lot of tumult in the last uh, week or so. And I think it's a reflection of uh, essentially a maturing process that we're going through as uh, the rubber starts hitting the road. Uh, and it's causing a lot of people to ask a lot of questions. It's causing a lot of assumptions to be checked. Uh, and it's also... There are a lot of unknowns still. So there's a lot of, uh, uh, scariness, I guess I would say, for lack of better, uh, uh perception for, for a lot of people where, where I, I imagine even, uh, you know, Sam and, and the people at OpenAI, uh, on the board and the employees are all sort of not a hundred percent sure where, where things are going from here. And that's creating a lot of, uh, chaos mm -hmm. would be the best way to describe mm -hmm. it. And it's, and, and I can only imagine for, you know, a lot of people who are outside of our industry that it, it looks worse than, than even it looks to me. Uh, but, I, but I just sort of think of this as a necessary, uh, step as we start, you know, figuring out how to really use this yeah, stuff. Absolutely. So, you know, I think that's exactly where I'm excited to spend our, spend our time today in this conversation is, you know, there's so much happening in the world of AI and there's so many, you know, great blog posts and podcasts and conferences like there's tons of stuff happening here but i thought you know i was trying to think about what would be the most useful thing we could provide listeners and when i think about that and, and some of the my own past experiences learning with you um you've always really helped me to learn how to think about things right like you you, you it's like how to make sense of things and and, and how to have sure. more flexible mental models that are useful and adaptive as we move forward because things are going to keep changing so that's kind of where I think we're going to go in this conversation, or at least that's my aspiration for it. Okay. So why don't we just start like, I, and I, I want to start by laying a little bit of a foundation conceptually. Like I don't want to assume a lot of knowledge on the, on the behalf of the listener, because I don't know where the listener is coming into this. So let's start as broad as this. Like we've all heard AI, we've heard machine learning. Now we're hearing generative. So could you just like untangle these for us? Just like parse these out. What What is the difference between AI versus machine learning versus generative versus fill in the blank here? If you just like start to lay that context out. So I think, you know, a lot of this is semantics and different people will attach different semantics to, to different words. Um, and, and so I think what I'll do is describe sort of the history of how we got mm -hmm. here in terms of this whole space. Uh, and I'll do, I'll di do high notes and you tell me where we think you think we should dig in okay. deeper. Uh, but you know, fundamentally all of the work that's being done in, in, in this space is all about essentially applied statistics. And there was a time where that's literally the name for this was just applied statistics. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then, and then you heard terms like AI came out back in the seventies and eighties and then there was, 
then after there was a bit of reflection and realization that we were a bit distant from reaching something people would think of as intelligence. And then, then they backed away and there was machine learning came out and data science came out as terms. Um, and during that era, a lot of what the statistical models were being uh, targeted on were what I would describe as essentially optimization problems, hmm. right? Uh, uh, if, if you think about it, where picking and, and, the, and the ideal uh, problem for them were situations where you, even if you had a perfect person doing the job for you instead of a computer, mm -hmm. they were never going to be able to always get it right. They were going to fail a certain amount of the time. And if you know there's like a statistical certainty of failure, then, hey, that's an optimization problem. You could try to get the smallest mm -hmm. statistical probability of failure. And that's something you could apply uh, a lot of data and a lot of statistics to. And so that was kind of what the machine learning data science area, when those terms were very big, that was kind of the area we got to. And then uh, uh, the, this other aspect, uh, this other track of this whole applied statistics space was was the, the neural net world, right? Where instead of trying to just optimize a problem, it was trying to simulate how we think, at least the mental model we have for how someone's brain mm -hmm. functions, right? How a brain uh, behaves. And there was a lot of work that went in there, and that was where deep learning started to, to come up was when they got to the sort of next generation of neural nets where they were like, wait, if we just really throw a ton of compute and a ton of data at this, this neural net thing actually starts to work really mm -hmm. well um, and because the earlier versions of it weren't working very well and that was that started opening up a lot of possibilities with things like object recognition and images and and even video processing and and and, and just sort of another level of uh sophistication and intelligence and then uh and then the most exciting phase that we're in right now is this this whole space of what they call generative ai um where the the idea was hey we've got these nice little neural nets that sort of mimic how humans think can we build a, a, a essentially a statistical model that can guess what the next word mm -hmm. is that a human would use mm -hmm. in a sentence? And then if you do that recursively, you can build out a whole sentence. You can build out a whole paragraph. You know, in theory, you could build out, you know, a, an entire uh, essay or, or a book mm -hmm. even, although most of the efforts to do that to date have been uh, humorous <laughs> at best. Um, but, uh, but, but nonetheless, um, it, it it created this this situation where people we were mimicking something that people are generally considered as as an intelligence as distinct from all other intelligences that are out there is the ability to construct language construct sentences in a in something that sounds meaningful and correct just to the listener that's kind of where the exciting uh, space of generative AI has been most recently um, and as we mentioned at the conference uh, you know that's that's sort of in transition now to a next level. Uh, experience where where historically the generative AI uh, uh, work has been in a in a single modality, which is you know text, mm -hmm. right? Right, like someone, so the inputs text, the outputs text. Now we're starting to get into multimodal situations where you have video or images or sound and text, and all of those pieces are being mixed together and then generating uh, some kind of output that is again essentially built on a prediction of what a human mm -hmm. would do in that situation. Right. No, I love that. Thank you. So just in terms of like, if you could offer, I'm curious if you can offer uh, a rule of thumb for, you know, almost like helping our audience become better classifiers of the things that they look at, you know, when they look at something, because mm -hmm. everybody listening to this is going to have a million ideas either of their own or of the, from their mm -hmm. boards or from their customers or wherever, you know, where, where, where's the line where something goes from like, 
applied statistics to machine learning to AI and then to generative AI? Like, are there any rules of thumb in there that are useful? Yeah. Um, yeah. So it, I think a lot of it depends on your audience. And there, there used to be an old joke, a, a slide I would put up on presentations on machine learning where uh, I would, I would have, you know, a picture of, you know, a statistician on one page and then a, and then a, a, a data scientist and the other doing and, and literally saying machine mm-hmm. learning. And the question was, you know, what's the difference between these two things? And, and the next slide would be just a dollar sign, <laughs> right? Like that, that was, that was the difference, right? Um, and, and, and it is a little bit like that, but, but in reality, what we tend to, uh, uh, think about is, you know, data science is kind of the academic pursuit of, of, uh, evaluating how we use data and and to build algorithms around uh, data and, and exploiting it, and particularly large volumes of data generally, right? Analyzing large volumes of data or building uh, uh, algorithms or solutions from large amounts of data. So that's kind of the data science uh, place of that, that usually is tied to that moniker. Uh, machine learning has traditionally been this, this, from this era before we were thinking that we were getting close to mimicking human intelligence, mm-hmm. right? Uh, that's usually what that phrase is tied to, but it's where it is, uh, uh, doing things. Usually it's like recommenders or classifiers where it's, it's doing tasks that a human could do, but by themselves, those tasks are very specialized. The model's built for a very specific purpose. And the, and, and while you might think that there's an intelligent human doing that one specific thing, because it can't do anything else, you would never confuse mm-hmm. it for, uh, uh, anything resembling an intelligence. And now, uh, uh, when people talk about generative AI or the other term that people talk about are large language models, this is where one of the things that, that's big with this is this whole foundation model space where you can have uh, a, a general data, like a generalized data set that you're training your model mm-hmm. on that is like just literally like everything. The anything, internet. Like like all of the internet. Yeah, Encyclopedia Britannica, like, you know, all, all of those pieces just sort of condense them all into a model that is foundational in the sense that yes, it, it may not be particularly good at any particular problem, but it has, it, it has behaviors that, that indicate an understanding of the mm. world in mm-hmm. general, of topics in general. And then you can potentially work from those to, to fine tune them for a particular problem that you're in. Um, and so it, it, it's that whole space of really being able to have conversations on just about anything, or at least, mm-hmm you know, seemingly just on anything and getting a, an experience that seems intelligent. Perfect. Yeah. And no, I, I appreciate that. And, and you laying that out. So just to play that back, it sounds like some, some ways we might encapsulate that is that we, we've had data science and statistics for a while and machine learning is sort of a more narrow application of these technologies to a, a specific use case, like, you know, look at this image and classify what's in it. Um, and then where we start to get into something that we might call AI, where it's starting to resemble human intelligence. Uh, and be much more adaptable and flexible across situations rather than being so brittle and, and narrow. Uh, and then a step further is not just AI, but generative AI, where we're giving it a prompt and then it's going and doing something and creating an output that right. resembles what a human might create. Is that a fair way to think about it? Yes. And the addendum I should put on that, and I should have put on that at the beginning, is there is this notion of AGI, mm-hmm. uh, uh, artificial general mm-hmm. intelligence, which is something that we haven't created mm-hmm. yet. Uh, it's, it's people talk about it and, and historically the, th- the uh, sort of a thing of science fiction, which is, you know, a true general intelligence. Like when I use the word general right now, what I mean is you can hit upon it about random topics and it gives answers that 
at least seem somewhat intelligent. Um, it may not be correct, but they seem intelligent. Um, uh, AGI is is literally getting to the point where something can really think for itself, mm-hmm. and we're definitely not there. Cool. Thank you for clarifying that. Before we start to to shift into application mode, which is I think where we're going to spend most of this conversation of like, okay, how do we got it? We have a mental model. What do we do with it? I would love it if you could just break down sure. in layman's terms what a GPT is. So that acronym stands for, I believe, Generative Pre-Trained Transformer. So what does that actually mean? Yes. So there's a couple of different ways of explaining that. And probably one of the bigger pieces would be breaking down each of those words, right? So generative, uh, that part is pretty pretty straightforward. It's something that you know generates uh, uh, its output from uh, seemingly nowhere, right? Um, and then there's the transformer bit. The transformer is really the, the sort of breakthrough that opened up this space, which was this notion that you could um, take, uh, uh, have a transformer, which is a, a piece of code that would take almost any input and turn it into a sequence of bytes, right? And that sounds like, wait, isn't that what every computer already yeah. does? And, and yes, that, that's true. There was a, it provided a general mathematical model for working with that, that opened up the ability to apply, uh, uh, both, uh, training data and outputs. You could literally train a transformer, uh, around any particular, uh, data set. You could think of it as essentially, uh, serving a similar function as, say, like the optic nerve that's taking, uh, a visual image and stimulus from, from, to our eye and then transforming it into an image in our, in mm-hmm. our mind, mm-hmm. right? Uh, that that's that's what that big sort of you know uh, add-on and adjunct innovation is, and so uh, uh, and then the pre-trained part that's that's pretty straightforward, right. right? The idea here is you trained it already. Training is a process of machine learning. Of you know initially all you're starting out with is some math, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. At best, and you feed it a whole bunch of data, and the idea is it learns from that data. And learn is definitely that we tend to anthropomorphize what the process is, but essentially. It, it, the statistical model gets built based on the data that you mm-hmm. feed it, right? And so that is the idea here is you build a pre-trained model that has been pre-trained on such a massive data set that it saves you time on working on whatever problem you're working on almost no matter what. The older model back in, back in the early days is like for whatever problem you were working on, all you would start with is an algorithm essentially. Mm-hmm. And, and then you would from scratch feed it data and first, like literally when the first byte of data arrives, it knows mm-hmm. nothing, right? All the weights are effectively zero. Nothing it does has any intelligence in it. You feed it a huge amount of data and then it knows. With a pre-trained case, you don't have to start there. You can like start talking to ChatGPT, for example, and it actually, sure, it doesn't really know anything about your problem, but it sure seems to be able to speak to almost any topic, at least as much as, you know, a, a child might be able to. Perfect, perfect. Okay, so now that we have a bit of a mental model for what all this stuff is, let's start to shift gears here and and put this mental model to work and think about how we can, you know, use this. Mm -hmm. I want to come into this from a little bit more of a top-down approach in terms of thinking about this strategically as as an executive might. Um, I know you you have, you know, the executives you collaborate with and you talk to many executives. So Mm -hmm. every I, I pretty sure most executives are at this point feeling plenty of pressure and tired of hearing about AI aren't yeah. sure what to do with this. But I actually, before we get into like, how should they respond to that pressure? I actually want to ask a different question, which is strategic advantage, right? By, you know, mm-hmm. everyone knows about AI now. We all know it's a big deal. No one has to be convinced of that anymore. 
But if everyone's moving this way, where can an actual strategic advantage come from? No, and and that's a very good point, particularly because of the sort of generalized model theory. In theory, you're you know the stuff that OpenAI and Google and and Facebook are building, right? They're they're good at everything. They've been trained mm -hmm. on everything, and and in reality, that's that's not mm -hmm. true, right? But but if that if it were true, then well, that means all of my competitors have access to the same intelligence yep. that I have access to. How do I differentiate? Exactly. Um, and, and I think that's a very, uh, uh, that is the salient question that actually is the thing that everyone's struggling with right now is like, wait, what can I do with this that someone else can't mm -hmm. do with this? Right. Um, so, so first of all, uh, I think that as, as a data scientist, the way I always tend to think about this is, like, is there a data moat out there somewhere, i.e. a collection of data that I own that is mine mm -hmm. that nobody else has access to that is potentially informative and 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 useful in a way that no one else no one else's data set mm -hmm. is right proprietary data advantage is the way to sure. think about it. and uh i i think that and you can use that data to essentially fine-tune one of these uh, uh models or to build your own uh large language model specifically for that data mm -hmm. set uh there's a there's a leaked memo from Google that was that was called "There Is No Moat," <laughs> right? That was the the title for it. And part of what uh, uh, came from that was after these, uh, after the Facebook models were the Llama models were mm -hmm. leaked, and there started to become you know this this open source community working on uh, uh, LLMs. There was this realization that actually, uh, for for a lot of problems, if you just take one of these open source models and train it on a data set that's specialized for the particular problem that you want to work on, they could perform, if not as well as better than some of these generalized models for that specific mm -hmm. problem. Now, what's really hard to build is a better open AI mm -hmm. than what open AI is building. Like there's there's a there's a handful of companies that are that are doing that and that are working in that space and they 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 very well may succeed. But it's not like, you know, every business has an opportunity to build something that is uh, of that scale and capability. But certainly, if you if you've got your own data set, you can probably build something that is as long as it's large enough and meaningful enough and distinctive enough, you can build a significant advantage in terms of what your model can do. And then, then of course, that's just talking about it from the engineering standpoint of like what is it capable right. of, right? There's a whole other separate problem of figuring out how to apply that in the business mm -hmm. domain, which no, as you can tell from all of the the mad dashing going on right now in the business. Nobody really knows, yep. right, the right way to apply this in any particular business domain for, or for any particular problem. And that's, I think, the, the biggest area where everybody's got an opportunity to differentiate themselves is if you can understand the possibilities and understand your problem domain well enough that you can see an opportunity that everybody else doesn't see, that can be a huge differentiator. Mm. That makes a lot of sense, and, and it resonates a lot with some of the some of the viewpoints that I've been hearing in my in the in the you know previous few months, and also in in consuming a bunch of things, getting ready for this conversation. One one way I heard it put well, I think her name is Marilyn Nika Neka. I don't remember her name. She was at the she was on stage at the same conference that we ran into each other at. And and one way she put it was in the past, like a product manager, you know, you needed to solve. It was about building the right thing, and now it's really about 
solving the right problem, right? Not not going down shiny object right. syndrome, actually applying the technology to the place where it can make a, you know, actually make a real difference, which as a quick aside, I think that was always the point of, of product. It was not to build, you know, silly things. Yes. But I guess my question though is, so let, let's, let's come back to the business um, application because that's going to also be very domain specific. But I want to go back to something you said a minute ago, right? You said this idea of if I am in my domain, if I have enough essentially proprietary data that I can do something unique with, um, you know, and do I have enough mm-hmm. of it? And can that make enough of a difference? C- can you start to actually make that a little more concrete? If I'm like, imagine that I'm, you know, a CFO who doesn't speak engineering. Mm-hmm. What is what is enough? Right. Like how much data are we talking about? And like, where is it going to make it? Like, what do we need and what could it actually do? So so I think in this in this aspect of it, you can, to a certain degree, uh, Use your imagination as, as just think of it as like, if I had two humans, one who had access to this data and one who didn't, Mm. would the human who has access to this data, um, have an advantage? Right. And, 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 and I mean that because particularly thanks to these GPT models that are already pre-trained on a huge amount of data from the world, it doesn't take very much additional data, right? To have something that is both useful. And how ha- it takes it, it can harness that additional knowledge and can do something useful with it. Um, so for example, um, uh, where, where I, I used to work at Ticketmaster, mm-hmm. right? Uh, they have a huge amount of data, but by like my ad tech days, when back when I was working in ad tech, it's mm-hmm. tiny by mm-hmm. comparison. It's almost nothing. But what they have is they have information about what tickets people have bought in the past, right? And for what shows and when and where and how. And it's obviously not as many tickets have been uh, issued as people have seen mm-hmm. ads. <laughs> yeah, for shot, sure. Right. But, but each of those transactions carries with it a huge amount of information because that is purchase intent, right? That is a non significant uh, 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 amount of money that's spent. And it is money that is not necessary to spend. People are only doing it because they really want to. So it really, provides insight about what they want and what they're hoping to get from something. And it's also very uh, transient in time, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. the value of co- the people who want to see uh, band X in 2020 are not the same as the people who wanted to see it in 2010. And that's a big challenge for people in that industry. But nonetheless, it, it, it increases the value of that data because it, it does show how it changes over time. And you can do a lot of analysis from that. So each individual transaction uh, although there were far fewer transactions, each individual transaction has so much more signal mm-hmm, in it, mm-hmm. is the way that, that I would describe it, that there's a lot of, that's a huge advantage. No one else has access to that much mm-hmm, data mm-hmm. about, about ticketing transactions, right? That's, that's something you can build a huge tra- uh, advantage over. Um, I've seen models these days, thanks to the GPTs of the world, being trained with uh, much smaller data sets, even sometimes as, as few as like a thousand examples, hmm. right? Um, if those thousand examples have uh, enough uniqueness, enough signal, enough value, there's a there's an opportunity mm-hmm. there, mm-hmm. right? But again, think about it as like, well, if I had a person who was an expert on those thousand things, would they be better than someone else at doing mm-hmm. something, right? And if you can't convince yourself that they would be any better at it, then that's probably not a, a, a real data mode. It's not really giving you an advantage, right? right? Uh, so, you know, for example, if if I was to feed my diary into into a machine learning model, okay, 
that would maybe make it particularly good at predicting how I might be thinking about things or things that I might experience mm -hmm. in a day, mm -hmm. right? Um, other than that, it's not going to be very advantageous for any particular problem, uh, including problems that I deal with every day. It's still not going to be advantageous because everybody else deals with, or at least a large number of people deal with that same problem. And so there are other data sets out there that would be at least as informative uh, about mm. So, So, you know, it's not just about quantity. It's also about the quality of the data and, and in particular, to what extent it, it is informative in a, in a way that is proprietary. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. You know, one way I, I heard this put recently by uh, a, guy, a guy we both know, Travis Corrigan, the head of, uh, head of product at Smith AI, mm -hmm. um, that was really, I thought, concise was he said, you know, look, not every product needs to have AI in it. Like not every product should be a quote unquote right. AI product. And, but probably yes. every company can take advantage of AI in their back office, in their operations to mm -hmm. be more efficient and so on and so forth. So I guess my, my first question to you would be, I want to go back to the, you know, imagine I'm an executive or I'm a leader in a company. We're all mm -hmm. feeling this pressure from the market, from the world, from our board of like, you got to do AI. You got to, you know, don't show me anything that doesn't have AI in it. Like, how should I respond to that? How should I think through that and, and this imperative that I'm feeling to, you know, quote unquote, do AI or AI-ify my product? How do we respond to this? So uh, some of this is just, you know, textbook, what you do with any technology kind of stuff, right? Like the biggest one I always think of is what are the big challenges for your business right mm -hmm. now? And let's make a list of them and think about which ones do we need to tackle now? Which ones do we need to tackle later? Mm -hmm. Right. And, and, and think, and, and where, and similarly opportunities, right? Like, you know, where, where are the biggest opportunities that, that lie there? And, and so that gives you uh, a, a application to focus mm -hmm. on. Right. Um, and then, and then the second piece of it is, okay, how can a degree of automation, a degree of scale, a degree of data, essentially data, provide me with uh, an ability to maybe solve this problem in a way that I previously never would have considered doing it, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so I, I would start there. And then the other thing that I would think about is, um, you know, start tactically and then move to a strategic uh, strategy, right? So uh, the way that uh, uh, one of my colleagues describes it is start with what you okay. know, mm -hmm. right? So pick a particular, fairly specific problem, right? And, uh, and, and probably an internal mm -hmm. one, right? That is, that is not even customer facing, right? Could, could you, uh, I'm curious, as you're talking about this, could you frame this in an example you've seen? Sure. Um, so, so common one is if you're in a software business, mm -hmm. right? You have this challenge of, of getting your, uh, your junior developers trained up to a higher level of competence, mm -hmm. right? And, and you have this other challenge that they need a great deal of supervision because they're still learning, right? So th this is, this is you when you started yeah. off in, in this space, yep. right? So the, the, the thing that helped you the most, right, was time that you got with me and other senior mm -hmm. folks helping you learn the ropes and figure out how to do the problem. And the thing that prevented you from being limited by, by your lack of experience was working with them mm -hmm. together, right? Working with us. So we would sit down with you and whenever we were working together, it didn't matter that you didn't have experience. It was because you could leverage ours and your fresh eyes on things were actually really helpful, right? Right. right? Uh, so, so there's, there's this opportunity there, but 
here's the problem. You have a limited number of very senior insurers, sure. right? You just can't, you can't actually give Andrew a buddy 24 seven. It. It's just not realistic. <laughs> right. And also, even if you did, then Andrew has no chance to provide additional value, right? Because you're using up all of that, that senior engineer's time mm-hmm. anyway. Right. Um, so now imagine if you had, uh, trained a, a model on all of the software that you already have, all of the work that has been done by all of your highly skilled uh, folks or even your less skilled folks, but gone through a review process where the collective wisdom of the team has been brought mm-hmm. to bear on all mm-hmm. of that code. You train a model on that and pretty soon now you've got a a little buddy that's sort of maybe not as good as a, a human, senior human, but does have all of the data that informed that senior human at its mm. disposal, that that buddy is available 24-7. You could wake up at two o'clock in the morning and go, wait, I got an idea. And 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 you're like, I need to talk to somebody though to see if it's at all feasible or if I'm crazy. Well, now you've got this bot that's available mm. to you to help you get there. And and we've actually seen in studies, I think Facebook in particular wrote a paper about this, talking about how when they applied um uh, artificial intelligence and, and GPT models specifically for software mm. development that it helped their most junior engineers not only to be productive immediately, but to learn faster and to, to and to develop their skills much, much, much mm. quicker. Um, and so I think that is, you know, a simple application. It's very specific. It's internal. So the, the great part about that is like, if it's a bad experience, you don't lose any mm-hmm. customers, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and, and you can count on your employees to give you feedback and also, you know, you're paying them. So anything bad about it, they can sort of, they can stomach that because you're giving them a nice check at the end of the week. Right. Right. Um, and so it's a very, it's a very good use case. That's very tactical, very, um, specific, right. And, uh, and, and very limited exposure to customers. So that's the, that's the easy, like, you know, kind of starting place. Right. Um, and that, that helps to give you a bottle for not so much the possibilities of what you can do with machine learning, but more how you're going to use machine learning going forward. You, you start to learn like, oh, wait, I have to stick, you know, a model here. I have to deploy it. I have to make it available to people. I have to think about what data do I expose it to? How do I secure that data and make sure it doesn't fall into people's hands? All of those kinds of problems, the very practical, very tactical problems, they all get solved when you work on that first mm. problem. Uh, and And because it's so small and contained, it's very tractable, right? Like it's not Really low risk way to do it. Yeah, exactly. And then step two is you start looking at, you know, where are there opportunities? That's essentially an efficiency right. improvement uh, uh, type situation, right? So so the other the other space that you go into after you looked at the, those possible efficiency improvement start sort of strategies is where are there whole new opportunities of functionality that we don't currently mm-hmm. tackle mm-hmm. because we don't have a, a means at our disposal to do it. Right. And then you have to start thinking about how, what, what extra means come from having this uh, artificial intelligence, this model available to me. What, what is the new capabilities that that unlocks that I didn't have? Yeah. And which is the, the much more creative, but also really ultimately hugely valuable challenge. Um, which, which oh, yeah. I think that my, my read on it today, I'm curious if this tracks the way you see, like it's that latter challenge that, you know, not everyone may find. Right. Not every company will actually potentially have something that is opened up and enabled by these technologies. Uh, but everyone probably is going to, you know, get operational efficiencies. Uh, the, the words that were running through my mind as you were describing right. the efficiency play, the sort of internal play that everyone can take advantage of is sort of like automate, augment and accelerate. Right. Like, OK, I have all this data. I can mm-hmm. use it for these three types of functions. 
which are, you know, this also speaks to the fear of yes. like, oh, are we going to replace all our people? Well, some stuff is going to be really low value and they shouldn't be doing it anyway. So we can just automate that and have them do much more interesting, valuable things. Yeah. The phrase that, again, another colleague of mine uses that I love is, you know, you're not going to lose your job to artificial intelligence, but you might lose your job description. Ah, right. Your job description is going to change. Uh, because, and, and think of it really, this is not unlike a lot of other technologies that totally. came before us, right? They, they didn't really get rid of people's jobs. What they did do is make certain parts of their job unnecessary. And that then opened up the possibility for them to tackle uh, potentially something far more valuable. Yeah. I mean, this is sort right? of the, the individualized um, version and, of creative and, destruction. Exactly. And, and it happens on a small scale and it's happening on a grand scale at the same time, right? Uh, you know, it, that's the space that I, I think when people worry about that particular aspect of it, I'm kind of like, okay, I, I think the thing that we need to prepare people for is not everybody being out of work, but maybe the fact that everybody's job is going to be different. Mm -hmm. So we need to make sure that we've got a workforce that can adapt. hundred yep, percent. Right. And as long as we have a workforce that can adapt, yeah, you're going to be yep. fine. Everybody's going to have something to do. They're going to have too many things to do. That's probably the likely <laughs> outcome. Because no, because every time we improve the efficiency of what a person can contribute to, which is, what essentially tools mm -hmm. do, right? Mm -hmm. Any new tool helps you with that. That that increases the demand for that capacity because wow, there's so much more value you can mm -hmm. unlock, right? That's that's the reality that we're going to face. No, I, I, that makes complete sense to me and, and tracks with my own thinking. I was on a hike recently and we got into a whole conversation about these these sort of bigger issue questions. And you know, one person was asserting, oh, you know, it's going to replace everybody. Everyone's going to be out of a job. The other person was taking a much more utopian view and say, oh no, it's you know, we're going to have this and suddenly we're going to have, um, you know, universal basic income. And then everybody can have this utopian existence where they get to pursue the things that they just purely enjoy and we'll all just do art or whatever. And I was like, well, yeah, maybe. But I think the real question is, why would this time be any different? Because we have a long history right. of technology being making us more efficient. It's increasing our leverage. And, you know, I don't remember, I can't think of the article right now, but we were all supposed to be, you know, working four hours a week by now or whatever it was. Uh, I'm not, I'm not talking about Tim Ferriss. I'm talking about a, a much older thing. Um, and yet we yes, just, what we do yes. is we just cram in more. So I don't see why this time's going to be any different. Yeah. yeah. It seems to be just the nature of things that, uh, you know, and essentially what it is, is you move from a model of trying to keep a roof over your head to trying to afford all the benefits that you want to provide your family to then affording luxuries mm -hmm. that the family doesn't even really mm -hmm. need, but it's just fun. They're like, we'll keep moving the needle on what, uh, uh, your job might make accessible to you, but it's not really uh, going to replace people. But I understand the fear. I don't think the fear is entirely without substance. And and I think the reason why this per is perceived as different is that this is the first time we're really seeing machines behave like humans mm -hmm. in a way that is close enough that we're hitting that uncanny valley right that that spot where it's a like spooky it's a little spooky like it looks like it's kind of doing what i do and it's it's doing the same things i do and does that mean it can do anything that i can mm -hmm, do mm -hmm. right and and that whole uh, uh fear i think it's coming from a very mm -hmm. real place totally. and i wouldn't want to take that away from it i wouldn't want to poo-poo people uh, those fears on that that like that's a that's a legitimate concern and i think that is the part that's different the reality though is um uh, that's, uh, that comes from interpreting what you're observing when you see an AI in, in action, interpreting what you're observing using a mental model of intelligence that's based on human yeah, intelligence, totally. right? And these, 
And these engines are not, no matter what, they're smarter, dumber than us, more capable, less capable. They're the, the foundation of, of how they work is very different from human intelligence. Right. Right. Uh, even though we, they're, they're in at the bottom of the line, we said, you know, trying to simulate neurons, even, even the people who, you know, Hinman, who, who, you know, started that whole, uh, uh, quest to try to mimic how the human mind works. He'd be the first to tell you these things don't work how the human mind works. Right. Uh, and so what happens is you see it do one thing that it's doing pretty darn well, almost exactly as well as you would do. And you think, oh my God, it can do all these other things somewhere at the same level. And it's like, yeah, that's assuming that it's a human. Mm -hmm. It's not a human, which means there are some things it's always been better than you at long before, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, we got to this point. And there's other things it's always been Mm -hmm. worse Mm -hmm. than you at, and it's going to continue to be worse than you at. And, and, you know, that's, that's the nature of the beast. So while the fear is real, I think that, you know, that it's coming from the wrong place. Now, maybe someday, somewhere way in the future, we'll get to the point where it's so capable and so intelligent that even the things it's bad at, it's still going to seem better than us. But we are a long (laughs) way away from that right now, as, as anyone who's looking at uh, uh, applied artificial intelligence is seeing right now. Like, you, you know, there's a significant gap between what a machine does and what a human does. Absolutely. So I want to pivot here for a second. I want to um, focus for a few minutes on some very tactical questions. So we've been we've been talking about like about okay. higher level questions around mental models and how to think about this sort of stuff. I want to drop down into the weeds a little bit here because a lot of folks listening to this are also like, all right, I, I'm also trying to build stuff with this. And so um, right. I guess I had I had a, a handful of questions I want to dig into, but one of which is, you know, AI, applied artificial intelligence, this is all coming out of a pretty heavy R&D space, certainly compared to your run-of-the-mill, typical like SaaS software um, production cycles. So I guess my first question is, how do you think we should be approaching the prototyping and de-risking of things like this, right? If I, if I was sitting with a PM on a product, you know, typical product, we were, had some product idea or feature idea, we'd be thinking about what are the risks? How do we de-risk those things? And, and anything in the camp we're talking about has presumably a lot of feasibility risk. How should we go about addressing that feasibility risk rapidly, quickly, in a nimble way? So, so the good thing about this is that uh, part of what's emerged from the, the GPT space is that the, the amount of investment you need to put up in order to start seeing results is, is reduced significantly because Essentially, someone else has already done that investment mm, for you okay. up front, right? So there is already a GPT model that you can go, you can go and talk to chat GPT right now and say, Hey, if I wanted this, what would you say in response? And you can find out what it would say in response. That's a lot faster than the old model where you have to like start mm-hmm. from scratch, rent a whole bunch of computers, feed a whole bunch of data into it. And then you get to ask that one question at the end of it, right? right? Now you can ask it right away and you can start to get a sense for, how it's going to behave and whether it's going to work. So I think um, um, having that sort of concept of actually we can get a, at least a sense of what this space looks like right now, and then we can explore what are the possibilities that stem from it and what is the good and the bad of it right now. We don't have to uh, invest a huge huge amount in machine learning to see what whether the business application might make sense. You just sort of say pretend that it was this, but it was smarter about our particular application, mm. right? That, mm-hmm. That's the mm-hmm. sort of, you know, the way you can start off. And, and the way I, um, 
I, I remember this wonderful story about uh, what happened when we first started working on voice recognition. IBM invested a huge amount of money on voice recognition, okay. and 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 they they didn't think of this as self as like, wait, how can I explore the product space before we actually make this huge investment? And the reality is, is really cheap way to explore it is you put someone at a computer and you put a microphone in front of them, right? And then you have a remote keyboard yep. and a remote mouse. And, and you have someone, a human at the other end, who's listening to everything that person says and reacting like a, as a human. And generally they're going to do better than any voice recognition model you ever build. But that sort of sets the mm -hmm. high bars like, okay, is this useful? Will people use it? If they won't, then you can save yourself billions of dollars in, in research and, and investment, right? Very quickly you can go like, oh, yeah, this, nobody mm -hmm. wants this, Beautiful, right? And, and pivot and, and learn what is the thing that people actually do want. So I think, while we don't have an easy way to scale up, uh, um, you know, to, to millions of people at the other end of that right. microphone, right? Um, we can do experiments in the small of like, okay, Here's what happens when there's a human doing this for you. Does right. that work, right? And then we can similarly do an another experiment of like, okay, when we don't have a human doing it for you, how much is mm -hmm. the gap but mm -hmm. in terms of quality of experience and and realized mm -hmm. value, mm -hmm. right? If it's if it's close, then that's where the opportunities lie, right? Of like, wow, someone said this was really useful for them, and when we applied the machine learning model, it was not that far off from being useful, yeah. right? Already, like just a base GPT model. Now we just need to figure out how to refine this product to do, you know, this in a, in a more principled fashion that really gets the value, all the value out of it. Yeah, no, I love that. Uh, that, that really is a great way to think about testing the value risk, right? And, and sort of doing that graded Wizard of Oz test uh, is how I think of that one. But this, this is a bit, a bit of a left turn, I think. But are, are you familiar with, um, I think it's Joel Spolsky's essay. I think he calls it like the iceberg problem. Is it a bell for you? So I'm not super familiar with Iceberg. I, I've, I've read Joel's stuff, but I'm blanking on it now. Remind me what that problem is. It's an essay, and we'll, we'll link to all this stuff in the show notes. Uh, it was an essay from 2002, I just looked it up, called The Iceberg Secret Revealed. And the gist of it was, it, it's this thing where if you show, let's say, an executive who doesn't, you know, doesn't have a background in building software, uh, you show them some mock-ups that look really nice, some high-fidelity mock-ups. Um, or some sort of maybe clickable prototype built off said mockups, like if you did that in Figma today, um, that those people will often basically assume that, oh, it's like 90% done. Oh, yeah, that problem. Okay, yes, yes. Now I remember it. Yeah, yeah, that, that problem. I know that is the iceberg problem. I've heard it called other things, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, It feels yep, like yep. we have a whole new version of that. Yes. Here in AI. So for example, like if I, if, if, you know, we were talking about this at that conference, right? If if uh, everybody has all this pressure to show their board how we're going to take advantage of AI. So their board's like, show me, show me, show me. And of course, it's reasonable for them to ask that. It's reasonable to go do some prototyping, you know, go explore, test out, taste the possibilities. But then there's this massive expectation gap between the, the, the expectation yeah. and the reality. So how do we, what do we do about that? Because there's like so much pressure to I think as Rich Miranov recently called it, AI wash everything, right? To kind of just like slap some AI yeah. on that. So what, what do we do about that for real? Yeah, no, and, and, and you're absolutely right that AI is a particularly dangerous field for this. And again, I would point back to our experiences with voice recognition right. on this, right? As soon as we started having voice recognition, people are like, well, it can understand what I'm saying. Then it must be able to do all of these other things. Again, the mental model of human intelligence instead of machine right. intelligence. 
if it can if it can understand the words I'm saying, surely it can do X, right? Or it can understand Y, right? Uh, and that led to a backlash of people going like, "Wait, this is a terrible tool." And and you've seen this with um, the the general the GPT models as well. There's a this this crazy thing that 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 before uh, the OpenAI released ChatGPT just before it, uh, I believe it was uh, Facebook came out and had another uh, chat client that you could talk to that, that was built on a GPT as well and was in some some regards perhaps even better than what came out with mm-hmm. OpenAI. But there was a huge blowback because it, it well there was initial excitement about hey this can do something for me and by the way this one was trained only on scholarly articles if okay. I remember correctly and its intended use was for helping. Uh, scholars to to write their write their papers and do their mm-hmm. studies and yeah people were very upset <laughs> and and just kept noticing all the ways that it wasn't mm-hmm. measuring up to that initial expectation that they had so i think uh, uh, part of what you need to communicate is that high risk that that we have to figure out a way to provide an experience that is contained and within that contained space we perform up to people's expectations mm-hmm. Right. And that bar is actually very mm-hmm. high and not an easy thing to get to, even with all of these these lovely models that are available right now. So that's the, the first message you have to have back is like, wait, I got to create a very contained experience and I'm going to need to do some work to make sure that we don't have any failures along the way that are going to undermine people's brand perception. They're going to undermine people's experience and they're going to just decide they don't want to use this tool. You also need to figure out a go-to-market strategy that's going to set those expectations to where to places where they are actually going to be realized, mm-hmm. right? You don't want to have, because people are going to jump to conclusions about what this tool can do. Whatever you come up with, it's going to be yep. like, whoa, hey, it's great. It's AI. It can do anything, right? And, and, there, and you need to have a messaging strategy, a communication strategy where you're going to the market and you're saying, no, this is what it can do. If you go outside these bounds, you should expect disaster, <laughs> right? But in this one in this one space that we've we've really designed for your needs, it will be exceptionally useful, right? And I think that's the the hard part. That makes a lot of sense because there is such inflated expectations, particularly I mean every, everywhere, right? Huge. Boards are they don't know what to think. They just expect something huge and so there's enormous pressure on on, you know, uh, leadership teams and yeah. and all the way through an organization to to deliver and so I think there's something there about being measured and how do we approach that? That makes complete sense to me. Yeah. Um, and then also, yeah, I think it's, I'm really glad you called out the customer facing side of this, because if we take something like, here's a, here's a, I think probably a very common case right now. Maybe you're seeing this too. You know, boards are putting pressure on team, on leadership teams saying, what are you gonna do with AI? Show me. Then teams go, all right, cool. Hey, we're going to go, we're going to go poke at that. We're going to come back to you. We'll show you some stuff. They do. They go to the prototype. They show it to the board. Board goes, oh, my Lord, that is amazing. And then their minds explode. Possibilities go crazy. And then they push, 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 push. They say, you got to get this out right now. Take this, push this to market, put this in the market. Or you might have CEOs doing that. And then what happens is that a prototype, which is not built for real, gets mm-hmm. pushed into production and slapped with production grade everything yep. and messaging. And then we have set ourselves up for a customer facing disaster. That's what yep. I'm anticipating is going to happen a lot. I'm curious if that tracks to what you see. It's it's already yeah. happening, right? Uh, uh, you we were talking in the beginning about cruise, right? Like like there was a set of expectations about what those those cars could could accomplish, right? right? And and those expectations weren't necessarily aligned with right. reality, 
And now we're seeing blowback from what that, that gap was, right? And you don't want to be in that situation. And, and this is an organization that knew exactly about the problem and was trying to manage those expectations and yet still right. failed, right? So that highlights the risk of failure is non-trivial. It's like hard to overcome even when you know exactly what yep. you're doing, right? Um, and so I think that is the message that, that really does need to be communicated to boards and, and, and yeah, the, the iceberg problem. So actually, ironically, you're describing a scenario that literally just happened at my oh. job, right? <laughs> we presented a prototype that got, was made visible to the board. And it was like, you know, this is what we can potentially do. And they were elated. They loved it. They were super excited. They were like, you know, how do we get this out the door? And, and I still remember the, the conversation I had with our CEO about it. And they, he's like, you know, so how close is this to production ready? And I said, well, I cut every corner I could possibly cut and still have this demo work. So we are a long, long way from being production mm-hmm. ready. Uh, this is, you know, this, but to which he this, responded, this, so how long? You know, I, yeah, exactly. No, and, and, and I, I won't share that conversation because that's <laughs> yeah, proprietary knowledge, but, but, but I will, but I will say this, that, that, you know, the, the, the part that I emphasized was like, look, you want us to explore this space. You want to find out what are the applications that are useful. So it's actually good that I haven't invested in making this production ready yet because we want to know what is the right thing to focus on. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, and then also to emphasize, like you said, there's a giant iceberg underneath. There's a huge amount of work to making any of these things really a quality product experience. And, and frankly, a lot of it's not technical in nature. Like there's mm-hmm. a huge amount of non-technical work to bringing one of these products out the door uh, because of what we've all been talking, what we've been talking about here, the, the managing expectations, the finding a problem space where there's actually value being delivered. Um, and, and also an ability to put guardrails on it to ensure that the experience is never so horribly negative that nobody wants to use the product or, or your brand again. Right. Uh, so there's a lot of work that has to be done there and, and you should be glad that you're not doing that work until you've identified a real problem with real opportunity and figured out, in fact, what is the biggest opportunity in front of you? Like this, this is the one that I want to chase after. This is the one I want to put on. This is where it's worth it. Okay. Like this is where it's worth it. Now we'll get to that work. And, and, and then just, you know, the, the other way I phrase it is like the fact that I did a demo to you means I've done 0% of the work of making something yeah. production, right? That's the iceberg problem right there. That, is, that all of that work has not been done. All we've done right now is done the little bit of the work that, you know, essentially a designer does of figuring out what should this mm-hmm. look like, right? And, and we've given you an idea and, and really it's more the, the way that, that we phrase it to the board was essentially this is more to, to, to give you something tangible to understand what the opportunities are than it is actually like a shippable right. product, right? Because we need your feedback. We need your insight to figure out what we should do with this. And, and I could sit you down and have you, you know, absorb like 10 years of studying statistics and, and get that knowledge there. Or I could just show you something yeah. tangible that makes it real for you. And then you can get a sense of what's possible. Yeah, you can sketch out an experience and help them understand what might be possible to open their minds up. Exactly. And and part of the fun part of this that, that I think is an important part of having that conversation when you're doing the demo is show a little bit of the warts, <laughs> right? Show. Don't make it too pretty. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll show where it goes wrong. Give, you know, do examples of cases where it completely goes off the rails and might not meet the expectations that you set with the parts that yeah. did work, right? And say, look, 
it does this part here great, and you can see the value. But by the way, watch when I do mm -hmm. this. This is a mess. We need a lot Over of work here. to fix this part here. Yeah, managing those expectations and make it and make it the make it the full experience that you're that you're looking for. Because I'm not saying we can't do it. It's just it doesn't do right. it right now because we hardly spend any time yeah. on this compared to what it takes to get this to be good. Yeah, I love how you're framing this up in, in terms of managing the expectations, being thoughtful about the investment relative to the risks, um, relative to the value, right? Like, mm -hmm. don't go do that investment until you know where the value actually is, which is why, like, rolling that level, making that level of a bet and doing that level of investment doesn't make a lot of sense in an early stage product until you've demonstrated the value, right? Where you know that, yeah, it's worth it to build this thing here. And I, I think I would double what you just said, like everything you just said, yes, and double, triple that if you're in a context where you can't just pick up and customize one of these off-the-shelf models and you have to roll your own from scratch, this gets like five times harder. Absolutely. Absolutely. There, there's, there is tons of tooling to help with that process. There's a whole field of ML ops that mm -hmm. is really maturing mm -hmm. right now. It doesn't change the fact that there's a huge... Don't let anyone in that space sell you on the idea that this means that you don't have to do any yeah. work, right? There are great tools. There's fantastic value that can be built from them, but... They, they they still leave a lot of work for you to do if you're building something from scratch. 100%. So I actually want to ask you one of the one of the hardest questions when I'm thinking about a, a product group I used to lead uh, that was a computer vision product and we had to build it from scratch. This is, you know, before before GPT, et cetera, et cetera, in a different use case anyway, where we had to roll it all from zero, from nothing. And I remember, mm -hmm. my God, what a lift that was and how much longer than we thought, it, you know, how much longer it took than we thought and how much more it cost and the whole nine. And um, so that's, you know, that's where I was speaking to a minute ago. And I'm like, yeah, by the way, it's five times harder if you can't yeah. pick up the off the shelf. But here, here's a question that came up again yeah. and again and again, and, and honestly, never found a great way to address to, frankly, to stakeholders who, who were non-technical. The, the question that would come up again and again when we were rolling our own, by the way, but I think this probably applies if you're getting to customize somebody else's, is when's it good enough? When's it ready? Right. And then you get into, yeah. you can get, I don't know that we need to get into like precision recall curves and that whole nine, but like, how do you approach that question? Cause that was the bane of so many people on my team's existence and we never quite cracked it. Absolutely. And, and, and I think the most important part about that is, there's a mathematical answer to that problem. And then there is the business's answer right. to that problem. And they're related, but they're really not the same. So it is very easy to have a scenario where you have absolutely achieved your statistical goals and you have a product that is terrible and not a good, uh, doesn't have a good place in the market. Not compelling. And, and, and specifically, you know, maybe you've done everything to shape the product right, but the bottom line is the model isn't performing well enough for the business mm -hmm. case, right? And you thought you only needed this level of precision and recall, or you, you thought you needed only this, you know, mm -hmm. error rate. But but actually, it turns out when you look at the business reality that it's different, right? Uh, and that is uh, always a source of frustration for the folks on the data science side because they hate having, it feels to them like you're basically moving the goalposts, right? It's just going to say that. <laughs> like, 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 oh, you told me that if I did this, if I jumped this it'd be high, good enough. right, it'd be great. Yeah, yeah, it'd be great. We'd ship it and everyone would be happy and there'd be champagne and all this stuff. And now I jumped over it. I cleared it. No problem. And I said, no, no, actually, let's move the bar up like twice as high. Now you need to get over that one. And, and, it, and it really feels rough. 
And, and I yep. think, you know, in fairness, it's not really moving the goalposts. It's discovering where the goalposts mm-hmm. were. You're right now, you're making a guess as to where the goalposts are. And part of what your early process should be is about trying to identify where that goalpost is, right? right? And you'll do that by, by essentially, you know, making some educated guesses and then conducting experiments that help you to determine, is that actually true, right? And, and that is actually where a lot of your R&D costs end up really yep. going to. Like, the, there's the cost of building a model, and you think that, oh, the cost of building the model, that's really expensive. People told me to build a model from scratch is really expensive. It's like, yeah, but the harder part is actually figuring out where the goalposts need to be for mm-hmm. your model. Once you know where those goalposts are, then you can, it, it allows you to be so much more focused in your development of the model that your, your time to, to, to build it starts to get a little bit more in line with what you mm-hmm. imagine it might be as someone who's you know familiar with the space. But, but the, but the hard part for anybody, especially like, you know, a data scientist who's got tons of experience in this space, building these models, they still don't know the problem domain. So they don't know how hard it is to figure out where those goalposts mm-hmm. ought to be. Right. So even though they have tremendous expertise and they can produce results, you know, they really have a sense of how much work is it going to take me to build a model to get to this level of, of, of capability. Since they don't really know if that's where the real goalpost is, they can't forecast how long it's going to take for your product to get out the door. And, and you probably can't either because it's a new space. You're doing something new that you've never done before. Uh, so you have to conduct experiments and figure out where that's going to be. And you have to be prepared for the fact that some of those experiments are going to give you results that, for lack of a better word, would be described mm-hmm. as a failure, right? Uh, and, and you have to plan knowing that that's going to happen and that at that point you're going to make an yeah. adjustment, right? And, and and I think that's the part that people struggle with because it requires acknowledging the unknown, mm-hmm. right? And and also it's 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 known to be costly, so it feels like the a really hard thing to manage to de-risk yeah. essentially, right? Like how do I de-risk that? It's like, well, you're gonna have to spend some money to de-risk that yeah. is what it amounts to. And and yeah. time. You're gonna spend money and time to de-risk it and it's not gonna be. Here's easy. I'd love your reaction on the um for my own learning and also for anybody listening. The, the two of the ways that I found helpful mm-hmm. to to deal with this problem, because it's a little bit of a chicken and egg problem. You're like, well, what's good enough? And they're like, well, what's yeah. possible? And you're like, well, I don't know. You got to tell me what's good enough before I can figure out what's possible. So it can kind of go round and round and round. Um, what I often did was I was just, you know, frame it up like, look, the, we know it's going to change. That's fine. But like, just just plant a flag for now so we have something to target. And then we can go figure out if that's even possible mm-hmm. and then figure out, it, it, okay, it's possible. Yes, no. If yes, is it actually good enough? If it's not, we'll figure out what to do next. Right. So that was sort of tactic one was just like, hey, just accept that it's going to change and plant the flag and you just got to go anyway. You have to start somewhere. You absolutely you absolutely have to plan for that to change. It's just yeah. a, this is a reality. Even if you think you've done all the experiments right and you know exactly where the goalposts ought to be, you're going to find out you're wrong. And that's just a reality of, of technology. Yeah. And, and the second one, and this is, you know, when I was asking you earlier about uh, how to think about de-risking the fe- like feasibility and doing prototypes and this sort of thing, which is really what I was speaking to was rolling your own model where you're building a model and you're exploring all these paths that you don't know what's going to work. Um, one tactic that, right. that we did, because we kept running into this problem where it's like, oh, I think it's going to work. And then, you know, three sprints, four sprints, five sprints later, you're like, okay, how's it going? You know, it just wasn't going anywhere. And so one thing we we ended up doing that it was helpful was saying, all right, we, we, we accept that it's un- uncertain. I, you cannot tell me in advance how long it's going to take. I, I accept that is just the reality. So instead, we asked a different question. We said, all right, how long am I willing to invest before I say we got to bail out and try yeah. something else? 
No, you essentially what you did was define an experiment, give that experiment budget and mm-hmm. time, right? And then you said, at the end of it, we'll be able to make a decision. And that decision is going to be, do we want to put more time and budget into this or do we not, right? That's essentially the the challenging uh, 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 you know, situation that you're trying to address. And, and that really is a de-risking yeah. process, right? Because yes, you've burned, you're going to guarantee you're burning through this amount of money and this amount of time, right? Or at least almost certainly going to get there. Maybe you'll have success before you get there, but probably, mm-hmm. right? And you, you arrive at that point and it's like, okay, well, we have de-risked it in the sense that we have a better idea than we did before of how close we are to our goal. And we have a better idea of, of how much more we're going to need to invest to get a better yeah. idea, right? Those are usually the, the two outputs of that experiment is you start to go, well, okay, I know I need to do this much to figure out, uh, to get an even better idea of what the risk is. And also, you know, I, 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 I know what the risk is like. I have a better idea of what the risk yeah, is. Yeah, it's, it's almost like setting a, um, you know, hopefully your, your experiment just yields straight up results you can evaluate in the context of what you're trying to do. But then mm-hmm. it's almost like putting a stop loss order on it where you're like, okay, hey, if we hit, if we hit two months it's, and like we're not even, you know, we have no idea, we're just going to stop this and try something else, uh, which, which reminds me, and this will be the last one I'll, I'll share here. I'm reminded of a, 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 a breakfast you and I, a very early morning breakfast you and I had years ago in the middle of that product when I called you panicked and was like, I need advice. Yes. <laughs> and you graciously got breakfast with me like the next morning. Mm-hmm. And, um, you framed it in a way that I've never forgotten, which was, um, basically what we're dealing with here. And again, the context is we were rolling our own model from scratch with a ton of proprietary data. Mm. Um, it's a story for another time, but it was this idea that, you know, look, what you're really doing is it's kind of a time bounded optimization problem. You have this amount of time given your budget and your, how many you have on your team. And then it became a question of like, all right, given what I just said about putting stop losses on this, how many shots on goal can you get in the time remaining? And then what can you do to accelerate that cycle time? Like, how can you make it faster, easier, cheaper to take more shots on goal, knowing that we have no idea what's actually going to work? Absolutely. That, no, that's very wise. You were. <laughs> Saved my sanity. Yeah. And, and that is, uh, always the, uh, important problem. And, and I like the, our team, our data science team has developed this process that I really like of setting a, a relatively short sprint actually for these iterations mm-hmm. where we, we essentially take a shot and see what happens. Right. But then having, uh, a, basically a week, uh, after that shot has been taken to analyze the outcomes and to, think about what is the next uh, phase of it and to really write out a thoughtful, effectively a mm-hmm. report mm-hmm. Uh, um, or a mm-hmm. white paper on what we was done in the previous sprint. And, and I think where a lot of teams get into trouble specifically with these machine learning models is in the anxiety of trying to get something out to market quickly, they skip that reflection and analysis yeah. phase. Right. And they, and they just go, okay, this, this wasn't on the mark. Let's go next, next step, right? Like, you know, don't, don't pause to reflect on what did we learn? What should we be doing? Let's think about what we really analyze the data that we're seeing, not just go, it failed or it succeeded, but actually like, what did we learn from all of this? Because you've invested a huge amount of time and energy in terms of like, you know, you've got some of your best people usually working on it, uh, highly skilled mm-hmm. individuals. You've got a huge amount of, of domain examination that's being done. It's like, okay, well, you've done all that work. The payoff isn't a yes mm-hmm. or no, right? The payoff is a much more extensive understanding and you need to give yourself the room to find, to, to explore mm-hmm. that before you start investing mm-hmm. again, right? Why would you keep investing 
if all you're going to get is like this yes or no yeah. signal, right? It's a lot more than that. Yeah, I mean, to, the, to use the language of, uh, that I learned from, from Tom Chi, one of the original kind of OG discovery coaches who, who used to run a bunch of stuff at Google X, um, you got to close the learning loop, right? You have to have that last phase to extract yeah. the insights so that you have something to take action on. And, you know, the way we operationalized that in, in the case that I was just describing after that breakfast was we, we sort of approached it almost like a, like a research group at a university might, right? Where we had people independently going off and trying stuff for a cycle and then they'd bring back their results and their analysis and they'd swarm on it as a team and rip it apart mentally and you know debate it and generate new ideas to try and then repeat 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 all in this sort of time-bounded optimization context and to, to tie that for for any of the my fellow product nerds who have you know are up to date with the latest product frameworks and all that um what we what i basically did was was what uh, is now been published in the fantastic book Evidence Guided by Itamar Galad. Uh, and Itamar um, basically talks about, it's almost this idea of a cyclical approach of using like an ICE framework for for ranking ideas. And then you go and you test them and you get new evidence, update your confidence scores and, you know, flush it back through the cycle and, you know, rinse and repeat. It's basically what we did. And he's just formalized it really well. So if anyone's looking for like a way to operationalize this and you need a framework, check out his book Evidence Guided. It, it I've done it. It, it works. So. And you, I want to highlight something you talked about there about the process that I think is really important too, which was the notion that everybody comes together to look at the results. So yes, one person knew or, or whoever the, the team was that was leading that investigation, they produced the results, right? But then everybody comes and looks at it and, and, and thinks about it and says, okay, where do we go next? What have we learned from this? You want, uh, uh, all the different domains of knowledge and, and, and applications uh, on the team, you want to bring them all to it because there's often insights that you're going to get from, from all the different parts of the team that are going to help you to, to make the next research breakthrough. Um, and, and you need that feedback. And too many teams I find like they, they're, they're too insular. They've right. got the researchers that are the people who are working on the research process and they, they, they present the paper and they all look at it and they read it and they're going like this. And it's like, yeah, but, have you brought in the product marketing people who are going to have to take this thing out to, to, to the market later? Have you, have you got their feedback? They might tell you, wait, I get it. You guys are seeing this one deficiency. This isn't a problem though. We have, a, we can manage this problem on how we, how we package totally. the product, right? Doesn't even matter. Don't, don't fix this. Mm -hmm. This is fine. Fix this other thing, by the way, which I have no idea how I'm going to solve on the product marketing thing, unless you solve it on the machine learning side, please focus on that part of it. And you're like, Oh, I didn't even know that was really a big deal. Okay, great. You know, you need that full feedback cycle where a whole team looks at it. The way I would phrase it is there's always this challenge. And I, and I remember I've talked to you about this several times of the data scientist who has the domain knowledge of how to use the statistics. And then there's the, the other group of people who understand the, the problem domain, the actual place where you're trying to apply it. And it's really hard to teach uh, the data scientists all about the problem domain. And it's really hard to teach the people who know the problem domain all about the data science. But if they work together, right, they can leverage each other's, each other's knowledge and get to a much quicker result than if they're working independently. And, and so you want to bring all of those parties in. I can't emphasize that enough because I've, I've seen that done too often, too wrong. Yeah. Silos end up, you know, they, they don't work. <laughs> so let's not do that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in fairness, they are good for when you're doing the actual initial investigation of like, you know, trying to bring out those results that you present to the team. Right. Let's leave someone be and let them go off and explore. But when you're evaluating them, 
when you're evaluating the results and trying to understand it and analyze it, this is a team exercise. That's a, that's a good time to swarm. Yeah, for sure. And I, I can only I only wish yeah. that uh, that Itamar's book Evidence Guided had existed at the time because damn it, I basically reinvented a worse version of his framework. So go just go do. I, I had a worse version of basically the same thing. His is better. Just go do that. <laughs> it works better. So it's better yeah, thought yeah, through exactly. than, than the one that I, I rolled. We rolled our own. All right. Well, Chris, this has been so fantastic. Um, thank you for being here, for sharing all of your wisdom, your experience, and, and helping us think about this better because we know this is going to be a big deal in all of our worlds going forward. So first, first and foremost, thank you so much. And uh, I just want to first ask you, though, you know, where, how can listeners be helpful to you and, and where can folks uh, find you online if they if they want to follow up or if you want to point them anywhere? Sure. Uh, you can certainly uh, find me online. Uh, let's see. I got XCB Smith on uh, the platform formerly known as Twitter. Um, I also uh, also on Blue Sky with XCB Smith and I'm on Facebook. You can email me at cbsmith at gmail.com. What do you want to leave folks with just to wrap things up today? That that there is a tremendous amount of unknowns on the table, and that comes with opportunities and failures, but it also comes with, that's where the biggest successes come from. So you just got to lean into all that fear and trepidation that everyone has and, and, and see that chaos as an opportunity. Um, and, you know, that's the reality, but, but think of it that way is the opportunity comes from the chaos. So there's going to be some chaotic outcomes. <laughs> that's, that's, you know, that's just the way it is. Beautiful. All right. Thank you so much. It was really great to talk to you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this, I'd be so grateful if you could do me a favor and take about 25 seconds to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That helps me reach way more listeners and it also helps me bring you more great guests. As always, please feel free to reach out to me anytime at connect at makethingsthatmatter.com. And until next time, my friends, leave them better than you found them. See you out there.